0: Good climate policy would be consciously thinking about how can I generate reductions of CO2 in other parts of the world. And so by taking a global perspective, I think that's got to be at the center of indicating that we as a country recognize the global nature of it.
1: Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, I'm excited to share a discussion with Dr. Michael Greenstone. Michael is a well-known voice in energy policy and economic circles, and he is the Milton Friedman Distinguished Service Professor in Economics, as well as the director of the Becker Friedman Institute and the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. He is also the former chief economist for President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. He talks with my colleague Nico Sophos today about a recently published book, The U.S. Energy and Climate Roadmap, Evidence based policies for effective action. Michael, with a number of experts from EPIC, have created a set of well researched evidence based proposals designed to inform the creation of climate and energy policy by the new administration and by Congress. Nikos and Michael touch on a number of key issues necessary to creating comprehensive climate policy, including carbon pricing, transportation, energy efficiency, environmental justice, and distributional impacts. They also take the time to review what lessons can be learned from previous policies and then applied or avoided in creating policy today. I'll turn it over to Nikos and Michael now.
2: Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. Let me start off with uh, where your book uh, begins, which is Understanding Climate Impacts. Uh, one of the things that has been striking over the last uh, maybe five to 10 years has been our ability to project the impacts of climate change at a much more granular level. So I wanted to maybe begin by asking you to describe where we are in that research, understanding both the spatial distribution of impacts, but also the book talks about the economic distribution or like the the hits to the most vulnerable among us. So maybe let's start there.
0: Yeah, it's actually totally from a research side remarkable and exciting period to be doing uh, research on climate economics and a lot of that is this is just like the computing got really good and the data we start to beat down the barriers to access to data and suddenly all these things that we wondered about we can now gain traction on in a unique way so as a, a really i think telling example is you know as recently as a decade ago our ability to say anything about climate change around the world was we could divide the world into like 10 or maybe 16 regions. And so you just think about that with the case of the United States, that's like saying that what's going to happen in Miami with climate change is the same as what's going to happen in Minneapolis, which is obviously very, very different. And so what is just coming bursting out of uh, this analysis and this data are a whole bunch of fresh insights. Uh, Some are that the impacts of climate in some areas, the impacts of climate change are projected now projected to be much worse than we expected. Mortality is a really good example. There's an interesting—I hope it's not too wonky—but there's an interesting reason we were getting it wrong before. All the data we had was from like rich, temperate places, and it turns out that once you add data from places that are really cold and places that are importantly already hot and poor, uh, the impacts just become much larger and. In other areas, we're finding the impacts might be less uh, than we thought. So on the top level, we're completely uh, redoing or rebuilding a foundation of what we think the overall impacts of climate change will be. And then now, finally, circling back to your question, what's also being revealed are just fascinating and in their own way, quite daunting differences in what the impacts of climate change are projected to be around the world. In the United States, the regions that are already hot are going to be very different, uh, differentially affected. I live in Chicago, probably on net in many respects, it'll be ben- climate change will be beneficial for Chicago, but there'll be wide swatches of the United States where the impacts will be quite negative. And that's just a microcosm of really what's going to go on in the world. And you can see that there are these vast stretches of the world, let's call them Canada, Siberia, Northern Europe, uh, places that are really pretty sparsely populated right now, where like living's going to get a lot easier and you'll be able to do new things. You've got to grow crops and stuff like that. And then you got where all the people are currently are pretty hot and pretty poor to begin with. And you just ask yourself like, well, is that stable? Aren't those guys going to want to go somewhere where living's a little bit easier? And, you know, in a borderless world, the answer is yes. In a world with borders. I mean, we have such a terrible time dealing with immigration countries and not just the United States. Uh, the migration crisis in Europe uh, a few years ago. And I don't know how we're gonna accommodate all that. There'll be a lot of pressure put on the system. So that was a really long answer to a very reasonable short question. Sorry about that.
2: No, that's that's exactly what I wanted to talk about. In fact, I remember the first time I saw the research coming out of your team on the differentiated climate impacts in the United States. My first thought was, how does this country stay together, right? I mean, you kind of look at it and you think about, the kind of economic transfers that would be necessary. And of course, this latest research has added the layer of inequality as well, right? That it just exacerbates and makes worse a lot of the both spatial and distributional inequalities.
0: Yeah, I mean, in the case of the United States, like, how are we going to have the discussion about which parts of the Atlantic seaboard we're going to let go? I'm pretty sure that people who represent those parts are not going to be in favor of that. And then you combine that with, you know, there are going to be parts where we're probably going to, you know, what are we going to spend to protect Manhattan? You know, every last dollar, I think, right? It's going to be really
2: hard. Well, let's switch gears maybe to talk about how to avert that uh, world and how to mitigate some of that. So I wanted to talk about a big chunk of this book. It's about pricing energy and internalizing the externalities of burning fossil fuels. So I wanted to do a few questions to talk about that. Let me maybe start with a little bit of where Washington is right now, which is we are in the midst of talking about infrastructure. And one of the things we're not really talking about is using a carbon tax to pay for that infrastructure, or at least it's not a prominent part of the discourse. The president hasn't really put that on the table. And it's also seems that it has lost a little bit of its appeal as a policy instrument and i say that as a, as an economist who's uh, you know over the years lost a little bit of his faith in, in the ability of the carbon tax to engineer the kind of changes that that we we need so maybe uh start there you know how are you reading the mood in washington in in, uh, in terms of internalizing the the externalities of fossil fuels and particularly doing that for a carbon tax?
0: I think there are a lot of in Washington who in their own private time are very supportive of a carbon tax. Uh, And I think if you could get people to truth tell, I think you would be surprised at the fraction of Republicans who are in favor of it, not a hundred percent, and the fraction of Democrats, not a hundred percent either. But it's got bad, Political juju on it, uh, and I don't, you know, that's just a, you know, it's a fact on the ground. Uh, now, is the Biden administration leaving birdseed so that people will follow? And I think they would love to have someone or a group of people step forward and really push it. You know, Secretary Yellen was certainly uh, been clear about her views on it, but I, you know, I surmise that they concluded that leading with it would be leading with their chin, so I think they want to avoid doing that, but. So that's like the politics. What I find strange about the politics is like the most substantive complaints about political complaints about it, I, as far as I can tell, are twofold. Maybe you'll add some, but their uh, distributional impacts are going to be bad. Uh, and what about our dirty industries, our, our, our fossil intensive industries who have to compete on the, in the global marketplace with other countries that don't uh, that won't have carbon taxes? And I honestly find those complaints disingenuous because those are just matters of policy design. Uh, and you and I could sit down and in about 11 minutes design a version of a carbon tax that would solve both of those complaints. So I don't quite understand why those why that message isn't getting through. You know, this is a famous line, I don't know if people can't understand or they're choosing not to understand. But so the, I would say, anyway, so that's, I, I feel like you might want to add something here though. So I want to leave some space for you to do that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the, I mean, the critique that I, and I too, by the way, share that both the distributional and the carbon leakage problems can be addressed. And and the book even talks about ways to do that on the carbon leakage side. And, uh, and it's probably not as big of a problem as, as people make it out to be, uh, to begin with, it only affects a few sectors. I think, uh, you know, some of the critiques that I find more compelling are, you know, what is the real carbon price that you'd get given the political economy constraints? And would it be ambitious enough, which is I recognize a little bit of a circular argument is that you, you don't want it because you don't think it's gonna be good and that makes it not good. But I think the deeper question at least that I have is, you know, you have a very different abatement curve, like the price that you need for like steel and for heavy duty trucks and for aviation and for cement is just so different. And what you're trying to do at any given time is to incentivize people to switch to the low carbon alternative and the sort of a uniform economy wide price that goes up and down, that is subject to political constraints may not really do that for you. Those are some of my uh, my challenges with, with a carbon price.
0: Yeah, and I would say, compared to what?
2: Fair enough. And I think I wanted to actually pick up on that and turn it back to you, because I mean, at the end of the day, we're not even in place that have used a carbon tax. It's not just a carbon tax, right? That you use that alongside other policies. And I think the book makes a compelling case that some of these are more expensive policies, but because they're designed in a way that makes them maybe more politically feasible. But one of the things that has a lot of resonance in DC now is the clean electricity standard, right? I think the book sort of talks about how you can approximate a lot of benefits of the carbon tax through a well-designed clean electricity standard. So maybe I wanted to uh, get your thoughts on, on, on that as a policy instrument.
0: Yeah, I think a- Clean electricity standard, there's a lot of positive appeal about it. For the electricity sector, if designed in the way that I would design it, it would operate just like a carbon tax or a price on carbon, I guess you should say. And that's great. But as you point out, you know, there are other there's sources of carbon in other sectors of the economy. And uh, I think let's get started with the clean electricity standard by all means. But I think with a very conscious eye towards thinking about ways to link it to policy that you want to undertake in other sectors of the economy. Uh, But, you know, just so we're level setting here on, you know, what would constitute a clean electricity standard that was uh, operating well, I think, you know, I want to come back, I want to, a theme in my thinking here is like, yeah, but does the planet care? And you know what, the planet doesn't care if we decarbonize through nuclear or wind or solar or geothermal, but politically, we seem to have a hard time taking the planet's perspective. We like particular versions of low carbon energy better than others. And, you know, those views are not without reasons. I think we're at the point now where we got to be focused on tons, tons, tons. And how do we get the cheapest tons of CO2? And trying to layer on seven other goals, uh, because we happen to like wind better than nuclear, or solar better than nuclear, it just feels to me like a lack of recognition of where we are with respect to the urgency of the climate problem. So that's a long way of saying, I think we need a technology neutral uh, clean electricity standard. And as I kind of indicated, I think it would be terrific if there were some complementary policies on investing in R&D and new energy technologies. And I think if you were feeling really ambitious, you might try and link the clean electricity standard with what's going on in other sectors like, say, transport.
2: I wanna get to transport in a second, but before I do that, I wanted to just do one more iteration on the internalization of cost. And that is the social cost of carbon, which is an entire chapter in the book about this. Uh, The Biden administration has said they wanna redo it. They kind of issued an interim uh, social cost of carbon. You have a lot of recommendations in here about how to do it well, but also some of the challenges in getting sort of the math right and balancing the different needs. So maybe uh, if we can talk a little bit about uh, how you see the best way to advance this.
0: Yeah, uh, so like what the Biden administration is doing is just absolutely terrific. I would, and you know, full disclosure, uh, Cass Sunstein and I co-led the pro- my idea and then we co-led the process to set uh, the U.S. government social cost of carbon uh, in 2009 and 2010. And probably somewhat naively, we're like, okay, and you know, science is advancing rapidly, and surely we should uh, revise this every two years or you know, with high frequency. And you know, it's It's probably never a good time if you're anywhere near an election to talk about uh, revising the social cost of carbon, and because there's always going to be a house seat or a senate seat that it'll matter for. So. Anyway, the Biden administration is kind of taking on this task that was set out a decade ago. And as we said at the beginning of this conversation, so much has changed in terms of our understanding about climate in the last decade. And they're just playing in a super rich field where there's many things that could be done. And I'll just list what I think are like, absolutely the most urgent, to kind of almost would be negligent not to do. One is The climate models have improved a lot, and they should just wholesale dump in a modern climate model, one. Two, our understanding of the damages of climate in a way that you and I were talking about at the top of the uh, hour here have so radically advanced, and we have much more nuanced understanding. And wholesale, it would be negligent not to update what are called the damage functions. I think a third thing that it would be negligent not to address is that there have been really like dramatic changes in capital markets over the last several decades, such that using the discount rate, and that's the way we value the future. uh, and, And that matters so much for climate, because when we put a ton of CO2 up, it stays up there for more than 100 years. Discount rates have come, or interest rates have come down a lot. And there's a widespread consensus, the equilibrium interest rate is now much lower. And so they should change that. There's some other things too, that I think are would be difficult to justify not confronting. One is there's uncertainty about climate change. And, you know, the climate scientists don't actually know what happens if we double CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere. They have a particular view on how much temperature will go up, but it's really, there's a distribution and we could get a very bad version or we could get a good version and we don't know, we're going to find out. That uncertainty and the uncertainty about what the economic damages are, I think building that in, and using that to value the social cost of carbon, I think that would be an important addition as well. Uh, And and then then there's some others would be completely justified from an economics perspective and a little complicated and maybe complicated or challenging politically, which is, you know, how do you treat it if there's, and this was, I think, at the core of one of your questions earlier, if we know or if we suspect or project you know, $1,000 of climate damages to rich people versus poor people? Like, do we care more about when it hits poor people? And I think in everything we do, we kind of care a lot more when people for whom a $1,000 is a big deal, something like that happens to them, than when it happens to Jeff Bezos. Uh, but that's not yet inside the policy making of the social cost of carbon. And so that would be something that uh, could be added as well.
2: No, I thought the the idea of of incorporating equity was fascinating. And I'm sort of intrigued by the ease of doing that. But I think, as you point out, there must be some recognition that we're talking about very different impacts around the country and and for different people.
0: Yeah. And it gets thorny because there's both the differences in the impacts within the United States. And then, of course, there's Differences and impacts internationally and like what is, what is the right way for the United States? Think about that when doing United States policymaking that would take, require some careful thought. I think, you know, one more thing I want to add, you know, it's in the you know, if you're in the weeds on the social cost of carbon, you understand uh, that what the Trump administration did was say, well, the only thing that matters is damages that occur within the United States. Uh, why should we? And there's a kind of a. Uh, appeal to this argument. Why should we care about what happens in Bangladesh? No American voter lives there. And that led to greatly reducing our estimate of the damages from climate change or reducing the social cost of government by saying, we're not gonna count any of that stuff uh, that occurs outside our borders. And again, there's a kind of inherent appeal to that. What that misses, and again, like, I don't know if that's like inability to understand or choosing not to understand, is the international nature of the climate problem. And so what that misses is that like when uh, a ton of CO2 is abated in Moscow, that does enormous benefits for the United States, just the same as reducing a ton in Detroit does. And so you have to, I think, good climate policy will be consciously thinking about how can I generate reductions of CO2 in other parts of the world? And so by taking a global perspective, I think that's got to be it the center of indicating that we as a country recognize the global nature of it.
2: Absolutely. Let me switch gears. There's a fascinating chapter on energy efficiency in the book. And I I really appreciated reading that chapter because I had read the Do Energy Efficiency Investments Deliver from a few years ago. And I, and I always find it striking that uh, people who talk about energy efficiency tend to not cite uh, one of the most detailed analysis of whether energy efficiency uh, sort of pays back the investment. So walk us through, first of all, a little bit what the research has shown. Uh, and secondly, like, what does that mean and how we talk about efficiency, which always seems to be the low hanging fruit, the thing we absolutely have to do and yet the research doesn't quite back that up in that same way.
0: Yeah, I've thought a lot about that. Actually, dating back to my time in the Obama administration, there was, and well before and well after, there's this glow about energy efficiency. It's kind of like, do you love your mom and do you love apple pie? And of course you love your mom and of course you love apple pie. And of course you better love energy efficiency. And why is it? It's because it offers the promise of like a twofer. You can save money for yourself uh, by installing insulation or whatever, and you can make the planet better off by being responsible for less uh, tons of CO2 emissions. Seemed like a no brainer. And It turned out when you dug into it, basically every, most everything that we knew were, was from engineering models. And you should think of it as like, if you've ever been to uh, the Berkeley campus, the Lawrence Berkeley Livermore National Lab there, it's kind of like, think of it as like, there's a perfectly constructed house on that uh, campus where my children do not live, my dog does not live, and where nobody leaves windows open, Nobody shuts things partially. Nobody installs things in kind of a, you know, pseudo careful way. And they did all these, you know, those, that's kind of like the model. Like, okay, what happens if we make this improvement in this house? And there's nothing wrong with that. It's like, uh, it's like an engineering view of the world. It just turns out that like where my, at least where my kids are, like it's a totally, the real world is totally different. Uh, and so we just didn't have real-world evidence uh, and we certainly didn't have real-world evidence that came from uh, randomized control trials uh, and so what we and just the same kind of trial that you would use to test a drug and so what my co-authors uh meredith foley and Catherine wolfram and i set out to do and then in a, compa- a, a second paper with hun alcott i was run a randomized control trial what happens if some houses get the kind of standard treatment under federal a federal program called the weatherization assistance program for fixing up their house Uh, and others didn't. And the results were kind of shocking. Uh, First of all, most people don't want it. (laughs) And even if you're offering it free, if you're charging people, they really don't want it. And so that's like already a barrier like, oh, we're gonna have energy efficiency everywhere in the world, but yet nobody wants it in their own home. And then second, like it just didn't deliver the returns it promised. And energy consumption went way down, uh, did not go down in, in, in the way that the engineering models have projected. And honestly, it kind of looks like a bad investment both from the household's perspective uh, and societally, you know, you're like getting a ton of reduction of CO2 for a couple hundred bucks uh, when there's plenty of opportunities to get tons, you know, for, you know, 10, 15, $20. So it's just like, turned out not to be great. What has been very disappointing is you know there are now a series of papers that show this there's my two papers uh, there's papers by other people that kind of have very similar results and the policy world has kind of moved on as if they don't exist and i know they know it exists uh, you know from quiet conversations but you know i don't I, I don't i don't have a perfect answer for why the policy world has not taken that on board you know our view is not oh my god energy efficiency bad you should exterminate it every chance you get, but like, hey, maybe we can learn what's not working right, and how how, how could we make it work better? But it has not been a, a grand success story for every policy interested in economist dream of evidence based policymaking. It's kind of more in the spirit of policy based evidence making, where you announce a policy while you're announcing the evidence without really testing it.
2: Yeah, no, I. I really appreciate you walking through all that because uh, like you said i I always find the political discourse to be disconnected from the evidence that we have, so I think it's important to not be disheartened by the evidence but do better as a result of that evidence
0: and, and you know I think it's important you know look uh, what I, what can I do I can produce I can do two things I can produce the evidence and I can make sure that I'm communicating in in an effective way and Yeah, I've thought a lot about is there a better way for me to communicate this and that is more effective. I also think, uh, you know, and we talked a little bit about this with respect to CES. We all have to ask ourselves, like, where is climate change in our priority list? Like, is it urgent? Like, because if it's really urgent, then you want to be, I think, like a laser on where can I find the cheapest tons of abatement and like ruthlessly search for them. Or is it something like, yeah, you know, it's on my list and a bunch of other things are too. And, you know, if I could directionally do some stuff about it, that would be great. But I don't, you know, it's not so important that I, there's an urgency to be ruthless in my search for finding ways to reduce emissions and to make our society robust and adapt to what's coming.
2: Well, that seems like a perfect segue to the next topic I want to talk about, which is fuel economy standards, because that's... Obviously, another area where we've had longstanding policy in the United States trying to regulate the sector. I wouldn't say largely unsuccessful, but generally unsuccessful, definitely if you measure it in terms of overall CO2 emissions or if you measure it against what other countries have done. So there's a, there's a chapter about the fuel economy standards. And previously, you also alluded to on the possibility to maybe connect these different markets, transportation and, and electricity as well. And how we think about decarbonization. So let's talk a little bit about transportation.
0: The you know history of the fuel economy standards that uh, go back ahead. Of, by the way, a totally different purpose then. That was uh, for fuel economy because we were worried about the oil crisis and uh, high oil prices and things like that. But now, you know, I don't want to say entirely, but at least partially. I mean, we'll, we're now an enormous exporter of oil. So. And I don't know if it's still true. Is it still true? or we a net exporter still? I bet we are. Maybe not after prices have come down.
2: No, I think we we lost that. We were briefly that status on oil. In any event,
0: so we have these standards and there's like compromise all over them. Again, compromise often exists for a good reason, but they're not like a laser on how do I drive out tons of CO2? And, you know, what are some of the compromises? Uh, The compromises are treating light trucks and cars differently, you know, and it's almost a rhetorical question. Does the planet care if the ton came from a light truck or car planet doesn't care, Planet just wants CO2 gone. And so to give light trucks an easier ride, that's a choice. Now, maybe that's a choice for a good reason, but that's a choice and it should be transparent. I think Uh, we also now have these footprint based regulations where based on the car's footprint, there's different uh, standards that apply. And, you know, if you wanted a ruthless version of Hunting for cheap tons, just inside transportation, you would sweep away both of those elements of the fuel economy standards. Uh, you get rid of the footprint and you get rid of the di- differential treatment of uh, cars and light trucks. No question.
2: Yeah. As you say, when you look at American politics, uh, ruthless attack on carbon emissions from cars does not seem to be the philosophy of the of the day. And if anything, it seems that we've kind of moved on to just electrification as the solution. And whether that is subsidizing consumers.
0: EVs are, I don't know, what are they, one and a half percent of unit sales now or something?
2: Yeah, I'm talking more about where the focus of where you're trying to get the solution to go.
0: Yeah, although there's a revision of the fuel economy standards coming and like what the treatment of EVs are going to be is, uh, I don't think it's been decided and I think there'll be a lot right on it. There's a version of it that would be reflective of what you're articulating, but there's a, probably a version that uh, would be less focused on that. And let me just, one other thing, like I, it's not that I'm not blind, or it's not that I'm blind to distributional, now I mean across car companies, not people, issues of uh, the car and light truck or the footprint thing. But like, guys, there's a total fix up sitting there to be had. There's trading and compliance credits and you can allocate different amounts to different companies based on uh, various criteria that would, you know, I'm not saying it would eliminate some of the concerns, but we greatly uh, mitigate them or mollify them.
2: Absolutely, no, I think you're, you're absolutely right on that. Uh, and I would also say that one of the things that's really exciting coming out of Washington these days is, and I think Secretary Buttigieg deserves credit on that, of also trying to get the, the book uh, as the sentence, the United States is a nation of drivers, which of course it is, but not by birth, right? It's also a matter of, of policy and so, Trying to maybe adjust some of that policy to to, to drive some mode shift, I think, is uh, one of the exciting things. I'm not quite sure how far how far it will get us, but it is one of the solutions that I think is, is very exciting. Being pushed in Washington,
0: well, in words, no, but for uh, let me just pick at that. What is that? Does that like uh, I want everyone to live in one square mile in tall buildings so they don't have to drive, and we'll get rid of we'll get rid of the interstate highway system?
2: That I would argue is the slightly more extreme version uh, of that, right? But yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, one of the things that strikes me is that you had actually more people taking public transport in the United States a hundred years ago than you did last year, like actual, not percentage of population. You know, you go back to the census surveys about commuting to work and the share of people in public transit and walking was decimated in the you know 60s and 70s. So, you know, I guess my point is that this became a country of, of cars because it was sort of designed that way and you could get a huge chunk of it sort of back, even if you we're able to do 10, 20%, you know, that would deliver some impacts for you.
0: I hear you. And I was uh, making a cartoon version of your point. But I I just want to come back I on the infrastructure point. I, it's not that they're not important, but and maybe I'm broken record here. Like, I want to see the math on the cost per ton. I'm not saying, of course, we could redesign our infrastructure to make people drive less. Is that like an efficient way to get to? Cost per ton, you know, to get more tons on a do- per dollar basis? I don't know. I, and I, I, it's not a leading, I don't know. I, I don't know.
2: I, I don't know either. But what we do know is that the second order effects as well, whether that's health, you know, public spaces, the, the benefits that come from density and from an active lifestyle, that also adds up so that it doesn't show up necessarily on the, on the greenhouse gas emission side.
0: I know I hear you but you know look we also have to take people's preferences into account too I don't think you know some of my best friends are urban planners but they have a particularly homogeneous view I find of quote unquote the right way to live uh and it's not clear that that is actually what people's views are on the right way to live and uh I think we have to respect Uh, some people are not going to want to live in the city center and some people like to drive. And if we make it difficult or complicated for them to do that, that's a real cost.
2: Absolutely. Uh, If I can defend the urban planners as a non-urban planner is to say that they prefer to do these things in part because of the incentives that we've created for them, right? And sometimes those incentives entail costs that they don't internalize.
0: Absolutely. I think we're probably both share a desire for a level playing field.
2: Let me go to the last I want to talk about, and that is coal and coal communities. There's a a chapter in the book that talks about this. So I wanted to talk a little bit about both the, you know, how do we accelerate the phase down of coal, which obviously has taken a huge beating in this country over the last decade, but it's still about 20% of our power system, and it's a bigger chunk in in some parts of the country. So maybe that's one. But also as part of that, because I think it's sort of a related question, is I'm really... We'd really love to hear your thoughts on the broader idea of community re- revitalization, for lack of a better word, right? In the context of, you know, regional economic strategy doesn't have a great track record, but we're 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 sort of trying to do some of that, right? We're trying to say there are specific parts in the country where we're hoping that we can be purposeful about how we channel investment, we get to get things going. And so I'm wondering, you know, how how are you thinking about those two questions?
0: Yeah, so sorry. So question one is.
2: How to sort of accelerate the decline of coal. Um, And the second is thinking more about the coal communities and how we can ensure an economic future for them.
0: Well, the frackers are doing a great job uh, at accelerating the decline of coal. In fact, most of the decline of coal is probably due to the fracking revolution, much less due to uh, government policy. And I think that what we should do is we should get all energy sources on a level playing field. Uh, Right now, coal has a large subsidy, which uh, is that it uh, doesn't really have to face, in many places, it doesn't have to face a penalty for the cost it's imposing on the planet, or I think the Clean Air Act is pretty effective at dealing with local pollutants. So I think we should have a level playing field for all energy sources. That certainly includes coal. Now, to your second point about, well, what about the places that have really been reliant on coal? And actually, um, my family vacationed in West Virginia uh, last summer, which I would. Highly recommend. It's very beautiful. And I think one thing that we have learned that maybe we kind of knew, many people knew instinctively, but didn't know in kind of a concrete quantitative way is that partic- when a community faces large scale job loss, it's very different than if that same total job loss is spread across the country. And it, can be very, very hard on uh, communities, it's very hard on young people, it's hard on people who've been there. And a lot of, we've kind of learned that maybe too slowly probably over the last uh, several decades. We saw that with the decline of the Rust Belt uh, really beginning in the 70s and 80s and kind of the uh, China manufacturing import miracle. It's a miracle, but from the Chinese perspective, it probably is. With a lot like North Carolina towns have been devastated. And, and that kind of concentrated loss is really has, you know, the difference between, you know, everyone losing 1% of their income in the country versus 10%, uh, you know, the, all the loss of being concentrated across 10% of people is just worlds apart. And so it's incumbent upon, I, I think, us as a like just society to find ways to help people adapt to the changed circumstances. And the track record on regional economic development is spotty. And I think that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying. It, I think it's going to be critical. And, you know, it's a little bit like an onion headline uh, researcher calls for more research. But I think we do have to, un, we're not, we're going to make the same mistakes over and over if we don't put in research alongside the trying out of new ideas. And then this is very painful, I think, for communities, but probably there's got to be some migration. Uh, and people finding different places, you know, making it easier to explore opportunities in other places. And, you know, it's, we just can't continue to have some of the concentrated pockets of uh, difficulty, which it's terrible for the people it's happening to. Even if you were only focused on yourself and you didn't live in one of those places, it, I think you are blind if you don't see it showing up in our politics. And, showing up in our national decision-making. And so like, you know, it's something that would benefit the entire country.
2: Absolutely, I appreciate you saying that. I think uh, your point on research, I I do find that uh, in my own thinking on the topic, I I feel like I've gotten a better grasp on what not to do. We haven't quite figured out what to do yet, but we we maybe are getting better to not try some things that we've tried in the past that we know don't work, which is a form of progress.
0: Yeah, no, no, hey, uh, finding out something doesn't work, it's not as cool as finding out something that does work, but now at, per our discussion about energy efficiency, the political system has to be able to absorb when we find out uh, things don't work and that's, that's the second problem.
2: Well, and that's, the, that's why we're here, trying to communicate what we know and what we don't know. So let me just thank you. That was a fascinating conversation. I recommend everyone uh, go, go download the book. It's a, it's a great read and covers so much, so much ground. And if people are interested in evidence to guide decision-making, this is a must-read. So thank you.
1: Thanks to Michael Greenstone for joining us today. As Nico said, the book is a worthwhile read for energy experts and policymakers alike. You can download a copy of the U.S. Energy and Climate Roadmap from EPIC, and we have included a link in our bio as well. You can find more episodes of Energy Through 60 on our website, csis.org, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. And as always, thanks for listening.